This is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries, all on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME6. As photographers and as artists, it's really important to be open to different processes, to different approaches to the, the art of making imagery. It's just far too easy to look at YouTube videos and look at instruction books and to follow techniques that have been established by some other other person. And it allows photographers to fall in the trap of becoming pretty homogenous. And that's really unfortunate because I think that the medium is a device and a means for being able to express one's personal vision. And sometimes the way to get there is not going to be found in a YouTube video or in a book or in a magazine article. It's going to involve the artist, the individual person going out there and experimenting, making mistakes and really exploring what the possibilities are. Because sometimes the technique or the approach that that individual is going to need in order to express something unique and very, very personal is not going to be found in a magazine article or in a video or in an instruction book. It's only going to come out as a result of that photographer or that artist really just finding that voice and the, the means to express that voice on their own. And today's guest, Walter Plotnick, is is a photographer who I believe has done that. He draws a lot of inspiration from the work of the Bauhaus constructionists and surrealist, surrealist photographers of the 20s and 30s. But he's he's taken a technique, which is a blend of both digital and the wet photographic process and made it made it his own. And the resulting photograms and composites that he's created really resonated with me, which is one of the reasons I included his work in in my last book, Adobe Masterclass Photoshop. It was not just visually different, but I felt I felt something different than I was reacting to with a lot of the other photographs that I was seeing on, on, online. And, and I was really pleased that I had the chance to sit down and talk to him to have a better understanding in terms of what he was going for and what he was hoping to achieve with the work. And I, I, I hope that even though it's not a process that many of you may, may follow suit with, I think that you'll take away a lot of value, not only in terms of what one particular artist needs to do in order to find that, that voice and the means to be able to express that voice, but also the importance of getting the work out there and finding an audience for something that you are so obviously passionate about. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Walter Plotnick. So how are things on, on the East Coast? I went on the um, the Kickstarter page and I saw that you you reached your goal. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. I'm completely excited. It's uh, it's interesting. Who you know, people have been pledging from uh, from parts of the planet. I you know, so someone from Poland just wrote about a blog. Someone wrote up wrote me up on their blog, someone from the UK, someone from Argentina. It's really interesting how, how, you know, usually I stick my artwork in a drawer and now it's really kind of getting a lot of press. So I'm very excited about that. It's very cool. 
Tell me the correct pronunciation of your first name. It's uh, Ibarian X. Oh, oh, thank you, because I've been wrestling with, with the correct pronunciation. I'm sorry about that. So <laughs> Not a problem. I'm, I'm, sure I'm used not to the it. only one. You've got a really interesting name. It's like you're probably the only one on the internet with your with that name. So uh, there's one other one, but it's just the two of us, and that's it. Uh huh. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm, I've got an old name. Walter isn't a very common name, so uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's an old name. So I'm not too worried about too many other Walters showing up these days. <laughs> You know, one of the things that uh, I, I liked uh, uh, about your work is how you sort of connect sort of this historical event, the World's Fair, and how you sort of blend it into um, this project that you've been working on. But I was kind of curious in terms of when you fir- first became um, interested in, in the World's Fair as, as an event. Was that something that happened directly as a result of working on the project, or is that something that you've always sort of been fascinated about? Well, I think it stems from going through the archives of my grandfather's photographs. And I remember, you know, as a teenager, what I mean, I never knew my grandfather. He passed away before I was born. But there were images of the 39 World's Fair, which looked so futuristic. And they were, they were uh, you know, pictures of family against these different backgrounds, which is uh, very typical for family tourist pictures or, you know, event pictures. So I was just kind of hooked by the architecture, really. I thought it was so space age, and this is uh, this was not a cartoon. This was not an illustration. It was an actual photograph. So I, I, I mean, I wasn't bitten by the bug at that moment, but I, I was always interested in that subject. And then I began to collect orphan photographs, whether it's at flea markets or auctions or you know, eBay or whatever. I'm, I'm always on the lookout for interesting, unique images. So slowly I began to amass these images of the circus performers and the World's Fair and the architecture. And then I started reading different articles and magazines about the fair. So uh, it started off with family and it started off with family photographs that really got me interested it was such a, a big event at, at the time, and it really sort of opened people's eyes to technology in a way that I think most people had never imagined it. And, I, and I've seen you sort of mention that whole idea in terms of that sort of blending of culture and society and, and the role of technology in it. Did that particularly pique your interest? One of the pieces, one part of the context that I didn't really discuss in my anything that I've really written and not on the Kickstarter page either, was that really in 37, 38, and 39, you know, the Americans were really interested in futurism and the world of tomorrow. But really, on the other side of the ocean, like, you know, the Nazis were invading Poland. So not everybody on the planet was thinking about, you know, futuristic design and art and culture. I mean, it was kind of limited to, I mean, I'm sure... Americans read the newspaper and knew what was going on. But I was kind of, you know, really thinking of New York or the East Coast or whatever. I really wasn't thinking as global about what was happening in Europe in 37 and 38 and 39 and what was happening there. So I'm I'm bringing this up because I wasn't really thinking as global at the moment when I was writing some of that stuff. And now that I look back on it and kind of take it into a bigger context – as to what was going on in the world, it's kind of a 
a, a regional thing that this 39 World's Fair was so full of optimism when other parts of the world were kind of in crisis. Where were you finding uh, a lot of the imagery that you ended up using for your work? Was it fairly easy to access or did you really have to scour to start looking for images, particularly images that you knew that you wanted to work with? You know, oftentimes people, I have purchased entire photo albums of people who I guess moved or passed away. And so I've, I've bought some photo albums where the whole album might have been filled with 50 pictures of the World's Fair and you know, they're double weight photo paper. Someone actually printed them in the dark room. It's not a scan. So I've really been on a mission to, to collect these. And basically I weed through them. I take, the, I take the best of the best and then I can crop into them. And, and the magic with the, the, obviously, you know, with, with digital processes, you can take a kind of a, a muddy looking flat image and just punch up the contrast and make it look fabulous. So you know, that's part of the process, too, is taking a mediocre image and, and punching it up and, and giving it some life that it might not have in its original form. Well, one of the things you're doing is that you're blending the, the digital with the traditional photographic process. Um, is this something you were doing even before this project? And if so, what sort of spurred your interest in blending the two? Well, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I went back to grad school in, uh, I guess it was 2006, to get my MFA. And the, pro, the program that I entered into was actually a painting program, and I'm not a painter. So when I applied, I made it clear that really what I wanted to do for my two, three-year grad program was I wanted to paint with light. So essentially, the blending of, of wet and digital process started probably around 2006 when I really kind of retrofitted and modified these different little light sources that I could use in the darkroom. So most people, when they make a photogram or when they project something, they usually do it with the enlarger light. But in my case, I really wasn't doing the enlarger light, even though it looks that way in the video on Kickstarter. Essentially, what I was doing was taking different light sources and using them to project light through different objects onto the photo paper and or I would scan things and print them on ac clear acetate or frosted or uh, frosted acetate or what's the other vellum. I would print them on vellum and I would use these different clear or frosted pieces of acetate to project light through onto the photo paper, process that in the dark room. And then I would scan that finished eight by 10 black and white glossy and then modify it further digitally. So it kind of evolved. I mean, it, I started with the circus images, which I was really excited about, the, the things that I would be completely scared and frightened to do. These people were doing them, you know, no net and, uh, and were beautiful. It was just kind of like a dance or some kind of ballet uh, in the air. So anyway, that's the, the long version. But yes, I, I started in 2006 by painting with light and by combining those different processes together. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, you, you draw a lot of inspiration from the work that was being produced uh, during the 20s and the 30s. Um, like the, the work of, of Man Ray sort of came to mind when I was taking a look at your work initially. Were you already aware of that work when you started, you know, trying it out for yourself? And how much of it was based on, you know, the work that had been done before and how much of it was pure experimentation? 
Well, right. I love Man Ray. Man Ray is actually a Philadelphian. So I had a little, uh, I actually, uh, where I teach, I had a student who was related to Man Ray. So I was picking her brain. But yeah, I, I knew about that work and I love that work. It was very freeing not to have do everything through a camera. For years, uh, I'll give you just a little backstory and get to your to answer your question. For years, I, you know, I, I processed film in the basement of my house. My father taught me. He was an amateur photographer. I learned how to process and print film. And I fell in love with photography. I got my BFA in Tyler School of Art. And then I really focused on commercial photography. And after a while, I got so bored of showing the label or making sure there's enough room to drop in text and shooting pharmaceuticals or shooting jewelry or food or whatever that I pretty much abandoned all of that and really I wasn't loving what I was doing so I went back to my first love which was you know photography where I wasn't involved in a commercial process so the Man Ray work represented for me just the the thought process of making art without any type of I mean even though Man Ray did do commercial jobs uh, it was very freeing not to use a camera, not to not to use regular film, to be working with photograms, to to have the happy accident. I loved the happy accident. After years of everything being controlled with studio lighting and strobes and color meters and flash meters, it was super technical. This was completely the opposite direction. This is let's see what happens in the dark room where you don't have control and where I come upon something that totally thrills me that I didn't plan. So the Man Ray thing really kind of set me up to try some of this experimental stuff on my own. Mm. Going back to the question in terms of how much was involved in terms of your experimenting, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a technique that's been used by a lot of photographers for a lot of long period. How did that sort of develop in terms of you finding your own particular approach that suited your, your needs? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I bought a bunch of different things, but one of the things back in the, I guess it was maybe the 80s and 90s, there was a, a real split between if you were a commercial photographer or if you were a fine artist. And I found that most either commercial photographers didn't do darkroom work or most fine artists didn't do digital process. This is like before Photoshop went crazy, but... Um, I guess from my experience, I have found that either you're a digital guy or you're a wet photo film person, and rarely did people mix the two together. So the vellum and the acetate, that was just an, an, out, uh, an outgrowth of the experimentation. But I was really turned on to by, by combining both of these processes. It seemed like most other artists that I either saw their work in museums or galleries or whatever were either focused with wet or either focused on digital. So I kind of liked the idea that I was bringing the old world and the new world together to do some kind of hybrid imagery that involved some happy accident, some part that I wasn't controlling, along with the precision of digital manipulation as well. Well, tell us about the first series you you mentioned the uh, the the circus series with the with the acrobats. Mm -hmm. You know, I could hear it in your voice that you were really excited about what that first series allowed you to discover. What what was the subject matter and the process that re resonated with you so much that got you so excited? 
I guess the the images of the circus performers represented a certain type of freedom to me, the freedom to be you know flying through the air or balancing on one hand or an entire subculture that I'm not involved in. I don't I don't I think I've gone to maybe two circuses in my lifetime and I've I really don't even think about that, but the images especially in black and white, there's something nostalgic about it. There's something about the some of the uniforms or costumes that they were wearing, something about the the lighting, the way it hits their bodies. It just all resonated in terms of something that I would gravitate to, but I would never do because I'm too scared, too scared <laughs> to climb on a high wire. Or, you know, it, it, and it was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for for life in a way, for being on the tightrope or so- soaring through the air and taking a chance and you know the consequences of falling and and the consequences of of not making it to the other side of the tightrope so i found it exhilarating in the daring skill set of these acrobats so, so how do you take that that perspective when you look at the the photographic work that you've been producing cuz you know it involves sort of taking risks taking chances being willing to to fail or fall you know literally and and figuratively did you feel like that that was part of what what was spurring all this all this exploration and using these these this merging of these two different techniques of really sort of pushing yourself beyond you know what you might initially have thought had been the limits of your your creativity and your photography exactly it was it was a kind of a dual a dual thrill it was a thrill for me to see the images and it was a thrill for me to not be so exacting and to take take the take the chance that I'm going to hate that what I I could work in the dark room for you know for 5 hours and hate everything <laughs> hate everything I worked on but if I had a couple gems out of that batch it would be something that I would then um you know run with uh, the, the other thing uh, about this combination also is that as I'm sure you know most developing trays in the dark room are you know, limited to eight by ten or eleven by fourteen, or if you're lucky to have a big enough sink, sixteen by twenty. So, for all of the years I've worked in the darkroom, there was something kind of nice about having these small images. Yet with the circus performers, they really commanded to be enlarged, to be bigger, and to be able to step back from and and have it be a, um, a kind of like a I don't know what the aspect ratio is, but it would be that like movie screen aspect ratio where. There's more in your peripheral vision. So with the circus series, I began to enlarge them pretty, pretty, pretty large for me. I think they're about you know, like 40 inches long, wide. And they were just so beautiful. So the, su- the subject matter was thrilling, the experience. And I'm sure you know, as a fellow artist, it's kind of all about the process. It's, it's the, pro- you know, the finished product is great and the finished product is a reward. And we all love that. But the process is what is so awesome in terms of spending that day in the dark room then scanning the stuff and seeing what I'm, what I'm coming up with. And, you know, I have tons of stuff that I would never display just because I just think it's not the best of the best. So it might look like I knock these things out. It might look like I knock these things out, but a lot of time is spent on producing these pieces. You know, one of the things that's always kind of difficult for any artist is when they were producing work that's that's pretty unique is wondering 
if and who the audience is. I mean, there's, there's part of the fact that there's a there's a level of satisfaction that comes from just creating the work, but it seems like a, a piece of work is never complete until, you know, sort of an audience is found. And there can be a lot of moments sort of a self-doubt because if you're doing something that's very fairly unique, you're not seeing like work outside of your own immediate environment. So, and I think there's a lot of trepidation in terms of people have in terms of putting it out there. Did you have any such feelings when you were producing the work? Was that ever a consideration at all? You know what? After years of trying to be a, a commercial photographer and trying to anticipate what the art director wants or what the design firm wants, and you're always trying to anticipate, well, what do I bring to that appointment that will close the deal and let them pick me? <laughs> after years of doing that, it really wasn't an issue for me about will the work be accepted? Rather, I feel confident to to run with the ball and do it the way I, I I'm comfortable doing making images or or pursuing different interests in, within image making. But what makes me crazy to your what you what in reference to what you just brought up is that finding one's audience because when I look around and see what a lot of photographers are showing, especially for um, exhibitions where there are group shows in the exhibition and obviously some. Somebody is a, a juror for that exhibition. And let's say I, I don't get into that exhibition, which is oftentimes the case. I will then go back and see which what work is accepted. And oftentimes it makes me crazy. There is the flavor. It must be the flavor of the month. It must be the flavor of the, ne- the past year or two. But I see a lot of depressed photographs of depressed teenagers leaning on the hood of a car. <laughs> and it is so not what I do. But it seems like there's a ton of that stuff out there. You know, everyday life, people, people in different environments, oftentimes teenagers, you know, you know, drug addict teenagers, depressed teenagers on the front lawn, on the back porch. It's just it's unbelievable. So um, I don't really I know that's a big generalization, of course, but I just see this as this kind of theme that keeps repeating itself. And of course, my stuff looks nothing like that, but that's okay too. I mean, I'm not going to suddenly start shooting depressed teenagers to to go with the flow. That's just not what I'm about. But in terms of finding my audience, the response that I've gotten internationally from the Kickstarter, from people writing me or people writing blogs has been so self-affirming. I'm just, it's just interesting to see See what people are writing about the work. You know, I'm not even contacting them to ask them. They're just kind of volunteering their insights and thoughts about the work. It makes me feel great. As I said earlier when we began to talk, um, oftentimes artists put stuff in a drawer and it just doesn't get out there. So these days with all of my work out there, I'm getting tremendous feedback and it, it really feels great. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's nice to hear people acknowledge the work and 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 write about it. What have been some of the surprises in terms of people's comments and reactions to the work that you that you found that you couldn't couldn't have anticipated? You know, it that's a great question because there are lots of young people in the United States and Europe who really didn't know anything about the 39 World's Fair. They just, just wasn't part of on their radar at all. And to those viewers, they just love the futuristic aspect. And they, they, I guess it makes them want to inquire about it on their own. And on the other hand, I've got 
older viewers who write to me and say, you know what, my father took me to the 39 World's Fair and I loved it and this is so exciting and it's bringing back memories for me. And so it's interesting to have both of those generations respond about the work and, and its authenticity. Um, one side note I want to just quickly make before I forget that in some of the images I have, I have ghosted in the background some airmail letters and some airmail envelopes. And those are actually letters that my grandparents had written to my father and my uncle when they were in the war. And so, again, you know, tying in this familial component, you know, kind of interesting, maybe I'm, maybe I'm searching for my grandparents, searching for my history in some of this, but I'm interested in tying in some of these small pieces to, of my family and what resonates with me into some of these images as well. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. One of the things I'm discovering that a lot of photographers doing is really leveraging social networking to promote their work and to find an audience for their work. And it, it, it amazes me how people use Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, to not only get attention to their work, but to actually create opportunities for them to have um, gallery shows or to be published in a book or, or, or a magazine or to eventually end up selling stock imagery. Just having your images sitting on a hard drive or even on a, on, on a website oftentimes just isn't enough these days if you want to do more with your photography. And Squarespace makes it easy for you to leverage the social network in a way that you probably would might not have considered just a few years before. That's because Squarespace gives you better social media integration, which means you can automatically import, sync, and publish to and from social media with just a few clicks, dynamically refreshing your site content and raising awareness in your social networks. For example, automatically pull photos from Instagram into your site or instantly sync pages and galleries to, to Facebook auto-publish new blog entries on Twitter, and, and these social media buttons are there to connect with all the services that you love, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Foursquare, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and, and more. And if you are really interested in going out there and not just getting your work online on a website, because it can die on the vine right there if people are not coming to your site and discovering it. And one of the most cost-effective means of being able to do that nowadays is social networking. And you can discover it by yourself by just starting a Squarespace account today. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com and sign up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then, if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code CANDIDFRAME6 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME6. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. I think it's it's really kind of fascinating because, you know, we're dealing with with memory, even though they, they aren't your own memories, you know, they're, they're memories of your grandfather, they're the memories of the people who look at the images, who experienced it. And, and it's, it seems like this merging of just the individual memory and then sort of collective memory at, at the same time and how sort of 
transitory it, it, it all is. I mean, the photograph is, seems like a very sort of tangible thing, but the very thing that it's reflecting is, is something that is very ephemeral at the same time. And I think that's one of the things that really kind of struck me when I took a look at your work and, and I included in your book. Cause I'm, I'm like one of the things that I sometimes I, I see is when I see photographs at uh, state sales of people mm-hmm. who sort of passed away and you look at these photographs and the stories are gone. I mean, all the, that is left is, are the images and there aren't any families or friends to sort of tell the, the story there. And when I take a look at your, your work, it always sort of piques my interest in terms of what's the story here? What were, what were the, who are these people? What was, you know, what was happening before and after this particular moment? And is that something that you feel like speaks to you or, or not, or not? Some of the some of the pieces there, there isn't a, a sequence per se, but a couple of the pieces I've I've uh, grouped certain images almost like a storyboard that that aren't on the website or aren't on the Kickstarter, but will be in the exhibition. And it's funny you should mention that because there is a I'm, I've always been interested in storyboards, not necessarily cartoon storyboards, like there's a beginning, middle, and end, but more of a storyboard that's open to interpretation, just the way you open to a page of a photo album, and there's six six images glued down, and they're all related, but we don't really know how they're related or who the characters are, but that is something that that is of interest to me, the, the stories behind these people, who were they what was important to them. And I, I have some pictures that I picked up at estate sales or yard sales. And I have friends of mine saying, Oh, that looks just like somebody in your family. And when in fact, it's really just a stranger, but uh, maybe it's just my selective process that I want to have some kind of familial content and some type of, I don't know, continuity, if that's even possible. But, uh, but that's a, you're right. That's a good question in terms of, flow or content or storyboard or what's what happens in a sequence and how they relate and do they relate so i i, I it's part of the process but i wouldn't say it's a main focus for sure yeah. well tell us about this this exhibit of the work how did that that come about because it was it's what propelled your your kickstarter effort tell us about in terms of how you how you put your work out there and how this relationship with this gallery in, in Europe came about and, and, and give us the details on that. Sure. Well, you know, during the course of the year, I submit to certain exhibitions to try to get in for a group show or a solo show. And I, I've had a pretty good amount of luck submitting things and getting in. But as I said recently, it seems like the flavor of the month is, is <laughs> much different in the United States in terms of, the type of work that's being shown. So I really started to concentrate to submit work to uh, galleries and exhibitions and festivals, not festivals, but uh, you know, group shows in, in Paris and Italy and the Netherlands. So for the past few years, I've gotten individual pieces into different shows in the Netherlands. So I started communicating with these people. It went really well. They loved the work. And one of the curators of one of the shows from the Netherlands over the past couple of years contacted me and invited me to show in her gallery after having seen one of my pieces in a different exhibition. And that's really the gist of it, that um, 
it was an invitation from someone who had seen the work. And whenever I'm out of the country, I'm always stopping into other galleries and museums, whether it's in Italy or Paris or Amsterdam, and, and trying to make connections. Because I, I have a feeling that I, I just think my work is being received better in Europe than it's being received in the United States. So that's an area that I'm going to concentrate on exploiting and trying to get more of my work into different exhibitions and galleries outside of the United States. Yeah, I, I find it kind of fascinating when I try to understand the sort of aesthetics of photographers and photogra photography in other, in other cultures. I was looking at some Japanese work some, some years ago and I would take a look at it and it didn't jive with what is considered quote unquote good photography here in the States. But there was something that was really appealing to sort of the Japanese community, photographic community. And I would take a look at those images and I would sort of try to figure it out. And I think that that's something that happens, um, throughout, throughout the world. And I think that, you know, we get very, we do a lot of navel gazing here in terms of, you know, what is good and what isn't good and, and lose sight that, that there are so many different ways that people are not only making pictures, but interpreting pictures. And I think that, that your experience there kind of speaks to that. I think you're right. I think over in Europe, they, they look at artwork differently than we do. I mean, I was over in Amsterdam and you know how they're, when, in the United, I guess in any country, when they build, they put up a new building, they put the construction wall around the building so people don't go onto the construction site. And what I found over in Amsterdam is that the, the construction walls around buildings are covered with just incredible artwork. It was just something that just made me stop in my tracks when I thought, wow, they are putting all of this wonderful art on basically uh, a temporary wall where a lot of the stuff that we do here in the States... It's uh, covered with, uh, you know, it's painted blue and it has, you know, do not enter signs all over it. So I, I think there's just a different mentality in Europe about art, you know, especially contemporary art than, than what we see over here. Well, you teach photography uh, as well. And, and how has being an instructor to young photographers sort of helped your photography and, and, and maybe changed the way that you approach your, your art? Oh, that's a great question. You know, oftentimes I'll have a student come to me and they will problem solve a situation in a way that I would not have thought of. And that to me is totally thrilling that they're trying something on their own that isn't something they learned from a book. And it's something just the way their mind works. It's a, a different way for them to to kind of technically or aesthetically solve something. And that's really my gratification is when students work on things and show me something that I really wouldn't have thought of. And I think I'm pretty good at, and pretty resourceful myself. So uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when, when students put their work up on the bulletin board and we step back and we critique it, it's just so exciting. And of course, you know, there's a lot of junk, but there are some really great pieces and uh, it's, it's, that's, that's the, that's the payoff. The payoff for teaching is being able to see these students evolve and grow and, and, and see what their work does and, you know, kind of get inside of each student's head and find out what makes them tick. What are they interested in? You know, not necessarily their home life per se, but maybe sometimes their home life, maybe some, something about their personal lives or their relationships with their friends or parents or partners or whatever. So, it's uh, teaching is thrilling. It's never boring. I've got tons of students who uh, 
who I had a student recently who submitted work to an exhibition online and the deadline was Friday night at 12 o'clock and she uploaded her images at 11.59 on that <laughs> Friday night and she was not, she didn't have a big resume, she wasn't established, she was just a student and she got into this show and it was exhibited in Italy and she flew over and went to the opening reception and it changed her, completely changed her confidence and uh, it's just a great, just one of the many stories I have of lots of my students who who've really excelled and tried new things and have succeeded. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of a testament that it's so important to get the work out there. I think um, for whatever reason, so many people are sort of hesitant of putting their work out there. I mean, there's a lot of social media and you know, there's, there's Flickr, there's Google Plus, there's, there's a lot of places where you can put your images, but it's a, it's a markedly different thing to actually put together a body of work and submit it for, you know, an exhibition or, or, or for publishing. And especially with your students, what do you think is, makes the difference between those people who are sort of very reticent to do it and procrastinate endlessly and never do it. And those that go out there and, and put their work out there and see, and see what happens. You know, that's a great question. I think it's like any artist who feels driven that they have to make the art. It doesn't matter whether it's decorating a cigar box or taking pictures or whatever their discipline happens to be. So I, I find that students are either driven and, and they need to take the pictures or they need to make, do the drawing or they need to cut up that photograph and reassemble it or whatever it is that they have to do. And it, it's like an innate drive. I don't think that you can teach someone to be – I mean if you can't teach someone to be inspired. But the students who, uh, who really do especially well I think are self-driven. They feel that it's something that it's in their blood for some reason, that it's, uh, it's part of their DNA makeup and that they're, they, they have to be making art or it's the student who's always doodling or it's, it's, uh, it's a natural progression for them to try new things and, you know, as opposed to the student who might work on one painting all semester and it's mediocre at the end of the semester versus the student who's got, you know, four canvases going at one time and a few of them are going to be crappy and a couple of them might be good. So yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it seems like an innate type of love that these students have when they, when they excel. Well, one of the things that really appealed to me about that, your Kickstarter project was the fact that you wanted to create an, a learning opportunity for, for, for students on, on both sides of the, uh, of the, of the Atlantic. What, tell us why you wanted to do that and what you're hoping to, to achieve with it. Well, I'll, uh, that's a, thanks for asking about that. Before I tell you that, I'll just give you a brief synopsis of one of the things that led me to that, that concept, which is I'm a real big believer in team teaching. And I, uh, I am a mentor to a young man at one of the, at, at, within my college. And, um, he was interested in the science. So I became his mentor and I taught him about photography and it turns out that he wasn't just interested in photography, but he was interested in the science of photography. He wanted to know about the chemicals, what, how, what was in the different chemicals for fixer and for developer and so forth. So the kid had a, a, a real interest in science. So I put together this program that I called the 
photosynthesis project. And what I did is I had him write a, a paper about photosynthesis, which really has to do with light and transformation. But I didn't want him, I didn't want his paper to be a scientific paper. I wanted it to be something that any lay person could read and, and, and get what photosynthesis was all about. Then I took his paper that he wrote and I hooked up with an English professor. The English students read his paper and then interpreted his writing through some kind of cre some creative writing where they each wrote, they each wrote a piece, creative writing piece inspired by his paper on photosynthesis. I also gave his same academic paper to my digital photo students and had them read the paper and interpret his writing visually through digital photography. And then we put a book together. And when you open the book, on one page of the book was the creative writing. And on the other, the opposite page was the digital photograph inspired by the, the academic paper. And then it was a big hit. It was, uh, it, it was printed and it, it was just a great way to team teach between science, English and art. And all of these students got together. Like some of the English students came to my classroom for the critique and some of my students went to the English department when they were reading their papers aloud, their creative pieces aloud. So to me, that was just like such a win-win for the students to have that type of thing. And the, my, the student that I'm mentoring, it was great for him because it built confidence for him. And he wants to go to MIT. He wants to be a microbiologist. So it was just such a terrific project. So after that was completed, I thought, wow, I want to sink my teeth into another team teaching project. And after I was invited to have the exhibition in Belgium, I thought, you know what, if I'm going to go over there for the opening reception, I'm going to contact a bunch of professors or you know, educators in art academies and art universities while I'm already over there and meet with them and talk about the possibility of doing a joint international project for both their students and my students. And I felt it out online. I've, I've emailed different people. Some people have expressed interest, but there's nothing like meeting one-on-one. -on -one. So I think the way it's going to work is some of these people have said they, they might be coming to my opening reception. Maybe we'll have coffee afterwards or whatever, or, or I'll stop, you know, maybe when I'm in Antwerp, I'll meet up with one of these people in Antwerp and meet with them. But that was the genesis. Doing these team teaching things was what inspired me to take it on to a global level. Well, that sounds exciting, and 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 it really kind of teaches people that inspiration can come from from anywhere. Because you know, who would think that a photographic inspiration could come from a, a a paper? Exactly. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, what's what's next for you? What are you what are you working on, or what are you hoping to to work on? Is it something that you could talk to us about? I know you're very busy with this exhibit coming up, and that's going to be taking a lot of your time, but. I am so swamped with all of that, but but I'll, I'll tell you the the other thing is um, there was the 1937 Exposition Internationale in Paris, and I've always loved Paris, and I've also been collecting some orphaned pictures from that exposition as well. So I've made a couple pieces around that that exposition. So uh, that. When this whole exhibition is over and I come back and in September, October, I fulfill all of my Kickstarter obligations and I begin to decompress, I might be interested in pursuing some of the 37 
um, exposition from Paris as, as another body of work that combines these layering of these different images. Well, I look forward to checking out that work. That sounds like I'd really like to see those. Well, thanks. Thanks. Well, my last question is I ask each guest to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I would say another influence for me other than Man Ray would be John Hartsfield. John Hartsfield did a lot of photo collage, uh, kind of like anti-Nazi anti-Nazi propaganda posters and flyers, and he was a big influence for me as well. So I would say go check out John Hartsfield, and he's all over the internet. He's easy to find. And his his <clears throat> excuse me, his images are very powerful. And I think if you're not familiar with his work, uh, it would be it would be a real treat to to view his stuff. And where can people go to find out more about everything that you've been doing? Well, I'm, I've, I think I've got a pretty good web presence. So if um, if someone Googles my name, WalterPlotnick.com, or you know, stuff shows up in Google, I've got the Kickstarter showing up. I've got um, a lazy blog that I don't uh, work on that often, but I've got some new interesting things there. I have some photomations on there that I've been doing kind of uh, working on some other little things. So. Uh, basically, if, if someone Googles my name, I have lots of stuff, lots of images. Go to my name and hit images. A bunch of images will co come up. Um, and I'm very grateful for you to ask me to um, share this time and, and speak with you. It's, 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 um, it's a real honor. So thank you for asking. Well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is the candid frame.